my name is Aggie and this is Biohacking Bestie. The one-stop shop for a modern queen where you can find biohacking courses, self-growth courses, and where you can find the most incredible community of women so you can hit all of your biohacking goals and beyond. I always like to ask my guests to hold my hand and like inhale and exhale together just because I feel like this helps us you know sync like I do it when I skydive when we jump together we kind of like synchronize our breaths and I think you as a yoga teacher is making me a little intimidated about this technique maybe we can talk about that in a second but just want to say I'm so grateful that you came on the show and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with my audience thank you for your time thank you for all the work that you're putting in Brett welcome to my show you. So good to have you. I don't know if I've ever opened a show in such a lovely way. So thank you for that. Of course. Well, maybe we can just dive right in. What do you think about synchronizing breaths? You would be the expert to tell me if I'm correct or oh, not. Oh my goodness. I think it's a great idea, especially to get us on the same wavelength. I know you're very far away from where I am location-wise. And my whole mantra is that breath trumps poses. So if people are short on time and need to hack it, I would rather they do breath work than asana. So I don't know. There's so much juicy stuff we can dive into, but I love that you opened with breathing that way. I, I have to say it's it's not it's something that I'm very much a student of. You know, like breath work intimidates me, and I think this is like the, it's kind of like one of these things that I I know how well it's making me feel once I do it, but I kind of like forget, which is literally I forget to breathe. And, you know, I just had a super stressful morning and I remember like, remember to breathe, you know, you're so human in this situation. But why is it that we, we find it so hard to breathe? Well, our, I mean, to keep, let's refine this. Like our body is always breathing, always taking care of us. Uh, Our nervous system has this incredible branch of it that, you know, even when we're sleeping, even if we're unconscious, our body loves us so much that it's constantly digesting our food, it's breathing. So I think there's like something we can tap into there where it's like we're so held by this body, we're so taken care of by this body. Like even when we in- consume toxins or or do things that are unhealthy, like our body's always fighting for us to the best of its ability. Now, that being said, an interesting thing, and I came across this in the research from my book, is that yogis back in the day, they kind of had this hypothesis that we were only gifted so many breaths per lifetime. And it's up to us how we want to move through those breaths. So like, say we're bequeathed a couple million, right? It's like, do you want to move through those breaths quickly (laughs) with rapid, short, shallow breathing? Or do you want to move through them slowly? So even when we think of, you know, the cliche of like an ancient yogi in a cave doing a headstand, they weren't doing the headstand because it was physically, you know, for some anatomical, like contortionist reason, they were doing it because when you're upside down, it slows the heart rate, the slower the heart rate, the less you need to inhale and exhale. So it literally slowed down their need to breathe. So all of a sudden they were maybe just taking one breath per minute while the average would be five or 10, or for some of us, 20 or 30. So when we can feel held by the body, we know that it's always taking care of us. We're never going to forget to breathe until we take our last breath. But are we breathing in a way that's anatomically efficient? Are we getting the most bang for our buck for each 
oxygen for CO2 exchange. And that's where I find a lot of my students have what's called reciprocal inhibited breathing, which means they're stuck in that short, shallow breathing pattern, which yeah. yeah. And, and it happens to all of us when we're stressed. Like so much of this is intuitive. Like we know when someone has re- like in a horror movie, when the, the character's breathing like really short, and like we know something scary is about to happen. When we see our loved one asleep at night and their breath is so long and slow and peaceful and the, their belly, right? That's so beautiful. So the breath is a reflection of our emotional state. It's like our thermostat for what's going on in our body mind. Oh, so beautiful. I wonder how many women are listening to this now being fully aware of their breath, you know? So I was just now, as you were speaking, I was like, it's a beautiful reflection of how our nervous system is doing. And, you know, I'm sure you can relate, but like for me working with women, I'm fully aware how much of the fight or flight we live in on an everyday basis. And it's this idea that, you know, unless the tiger's chasing you, then you should be relaxed. But we we are taught to be always nice, always kind, always considerate, and it leads to us being fully preoccupied with other people's well-being and their emotions. That leads us to be hyper vigilant, right? Or like, oh, I'm making people feel that way, and it makes us tense. And so, breath is like such a biohack to fully like drop into our bodies where the feminine is. And I think if there is, like, I was like, for me, the biggest lesson is like. When I tense my breath, I feel very masculine. And for me to drop into my feminine and it's not about wearing a, a dress, you know, it's it's about really just like easing into that breath. Yeah. I mean, if we think of the the sounds that women make in labor, those those moans, those deep guttural sounds, you know, that's all coming from the gut, right? And and I, I, I love what you're saying. And I similarly I write about in the book, thinking about women specifically, most women from when we hit puberty, we notice that if we look in a mirror or see our reflection in a pane of glass or whatever, what do we do? We <gasps> suck our belly in because we want to look thinner. We have this, yeah, we have this beauty that. aesthetic that we should <gasps> suck it in. But what I dissect in chapter four, which is the largest chapter in the book, the breath chapter is the largest chapter in the book because it was the most complex. And to me, the breath is the most important thing about yoga is that when we suck it in, we are suffocating our inside. So your diaphragm, which is the muscle that powers your breathing, it moves down when you breathe in and kind of squishes your belly. So your belly puffs out and then it moves up and nestles up under your rib cage as you exhale. If it can't do that in its full range of motion, we're needing to take more breaths per minute. So we're literally, if we go back to that yogic model, not to scare people, but it's just kind of fun to think about, it's potentially making our lifespan shorter. It's for sure stressing our nervous system. I always think back to the era when women used to wear corsets and what was happening during that period. They were constantly fainting, right? And had to be woken up with smelling salts. It's because their diaphragms were in a literal bind. So I'm all for wearing, you know, the Spanx or, you know, the things for like a fun night out. But please, like I tell people, like do this minimally because actually if we look at ancient art from India, Vedic times, like the belly kind of puffed out. And we see this with depictions of Buddha as well. The belly kind of puffed out is a signal in ancient art of someone who's enlightened. And it's not because they're binging on food. It's because the belly kind of puffed out is is a symbol of someone who's deeply accessing a meditative state, who has an insanely powerful diaphragm, which is this muscle we all forget about. 
right? So if you can, everyone listening to this, if you can just think of your inhale, if you put your hand on just below your navel, like your belly puffing out a little bit each time you breathe in and your belly moving back towards your spine each time you breathe out, like even if you just practice that at night with your hands on your belly, like this is taking your diaphragm to the air gym and really retraining one of the most vital systems. Again, I think of this as the biggest hack because I know at my gym, people are like doing these things on machines and like they're wanting to sculpt the muscles we can see, right? Like your biceps and your quads and your abs. But the invisible superhero muscle that's more important than any of them is this diaphragm muscle. And and this pranayama that yoga offers us is like training exercises essentially for the diaphragm. So once you get really good at having the belly puff out as you breathe in and pull back when you breathe out, then you can start adding like like you hold an isometric weight at the gym, right? You can hold the breath out for a couple beats. You can hold the breath in and that's all retraining the diaphragm so that you're breathing in a way that signals safety to your nervous system. Oh, beautiful. Uh, I have so many questions now. So why don't we just start with maybe just explaining what yoga is. I know that we all think it's just so common that we feel like, of course I know what yoga is, yet most people don't do it. And I think there's a bit of a misconception because yoga has gone so mainstream that I feel like sometimes it lost its core. And I think most people think, oh, yoga is good for stretching. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. My definition of yoga in the book, which is pretty radical, is that yoga is awareness. So any time that you pause throughout your day and notice your breath, perhaps like we just did together, and the yogi said, the more space between your breaths, the more space between your thoughts. So the more you uh, slow down your breath. Getting goosebumps when you say I know. Things. I'm so excited. You're excited. The, the, the more you become aware of your thoughts and you realize that your inner dialogue is not you. And why this is so powerful is because it enables us to respond from a place of grace from a place of, you know, our, our most authentic self instead of react in like our habitual patterns, right? So that to me is why yoga is exciting. It is the yoga of awareness. Yoga is the science of energy management. The number one pharmaceutical sold in America, let people guess for a minute, but it's, it's sleeping pills, sleeping aids. Our culture can't wind down. And then what else do people in our culture love? Starbucks, coffee, right? People can't wake up. So we have this energy management problem in our modern culture where people are having a very hard time. I would say it's crisis. Crisis. It's like, I think people don't even know what it's like to feel, wake up in the morning and feel great. Like I, I genuinely can see that, you know, that it's the, the exhaustion is such a default right now that I think we don't even know what it's like to wake up, not having a coffee, not needing, well, not needing a coffee. That's mm-hmm. different. You can have a coffee if you really want, but if you need a coffee, you're having it from a very different place, right? So, so we're turning to these stimulants, right? We're turning to stimulants and then depressants, right? And, and the reality is yogis figured this all out millennia ago. Like there's a, a breathing technique that I teach in the book that is like a shot of espresso for your nervous system. And this is another big misconception about yoga. Like people think it's just to relax and that's not true at all. Every style of yoga, every pose, every breathing technique affects your energy differently. So there's yoga poses and breath work that you can do to get more energized, and there's ones that you can do to wind down. Now, I think this is an area of your expertise too. It's like, how do these things then interact with my chemistry, right? Like with with my internal chemistry. And that's another thing I'm really passionate about sharing is that a pose or a breathing technique that's going to feel great for me 
could give you a migraine, right? We're all built differently. So this is why I wanted this book to really help women figure out, like, how can I do personalized uh, postures and breath work that meld and match not just my personality, but the type of day I'm living in, like whether I want to get energized or relaxed. It's like, it's no one size fits all, but it's also like the extreme personalization every day. Something that worked for you yesterday is maybe not something that you need today. I'm just like listening to you. I'm like, not only, you know, I'm sure people are dying to dive into the book because it sounds maybe a little dead. Oh my God, reading a book about yoga, isn't it all about poses? But the way you explain it, it's a little bit like, when you go back to school and you have a teacher and they make you hate math and then you change your teacher and you're like, oh, actually math is really cool. I really feel like that with yoga. Like I have been to so many boring classes when the teacher constantly corrects, incorrect. This is not how you do it. And I'm like, well, I'm not that flexible. I can't do X, Y, and Z. And it's just that, you know, whether it's even like as basic as pigeon. And I'm thinking like, I love the teachers that re remind me that it's about between me and me. And what maybe yesterday I could do a better pigeon, pigeon but today is not that day. My, I'm doing my best for today. And I think just that like that loving kindness towards myself in the class is when these are like my favorite classes that kind of remind me that is about breath. And it's, it's not about looking at someone next to you and how far they're going. And so what is like your actually maybe I already know you would be my favorite yoga teacher if I'm in the class together. But what do you think is like what I don't want to say like what annoys you in the industry, but I think what do you think turns people off about yoga? Like what is it that can be improved perhaps with like even yoga teachers listening to this? Because you know you have a you know you teach people to teach yoga. Mm -hmm. I think the pose is not the goal. The awareness in the pose is the goal right? So let's just zoom out, right? If you're super bendy, maybe you're hyper flexible, sinking into poses like pigeon and the splits, that's easy for you. So in yoga, we have this word called tapas. And tapas is often translated as heat, but it's so much more sophisticated than that. It's basically alchemy, right? It's the, it's the burning desire to evolve. So Newton's law of motion teaches us like an object will stay in motion unless some force like forces it to change, right? So that's the same for all of us. We're kind of pre-programmed from our family. Like we, we learn like this behavior earns love, this behavior doesn't. We, from work, we, we learn this is safe, this isn't safe. From our partners, all of this. So we're these little programs, right? And then we come into yoga and we're, we're attracted to what we're good at, right? So that super Gumby person is going to want to do all the Gumby style of yoga, but that's not where their tapas is. That's not where their work is. That's not where their transformation is, right? Let's take it an opposite approach. Like maybe someone's really type A, they're like no pain, no gain type of mindset. And they love doing like 108 sun salutations every day and they push themselves even though it hurts. And for that person, doing like yin yoga or restorative would be tapas for them. Does that make sense? Because, because it's taking them outside of their comfort zone. Yes. Oh my God. I, again, I, you're incredible. I don't think I've ever had a guest that I had so many goosebumps. Like I literally, everything you say, I'm like, yes, yes. And yes, because you, there is also this whole idea. So I do dancing. Me too. And I, but I'm not a dancer at all. And I started learning last year and I really suck at it, but I was thinking that it's like, but I'm like, for example, really good at skydiving, which most people aren't. So it's really easy for me to post a video skydiving because I look cool and I know what I'm doing. 
versus dancing, which is so intimidating. I'm learning. And, you know, and I was just thinking there is this big element of ego. When you're really good at something, like say you're good at yoga, this is not your tapas because it's like, if you're very bendy, the one in the class that always gets all the poses right, you probably feel like I'm so cool, right? There's that element of like, oh, I'm a little better than everyone in the class. But like, what is your tapas in that? It's not the pose that you're getting, right? But it's the mindset. So the cheat phrase I use for this that could be helpful for listeners is cultivate the opposite right? Cultivate the opposite. So I always tell people the style of yoga you're attracted to initially is probably not the style that's really going to balance you and bring you into your most authentic radiance. So I can use myself as an example. In the book, I also talk about how yoga was never meant to be separated from its sister science called Ayurveda. Ayurveda is something you may be familiar with or listeners may be familiar with. If you're not but let's explain yeah, it because I think people have heard it, but it's like, wait, do you eat this? Yes, <laughs> no, totally. I understand. So it's translated as life sciences. And I always talk about them as twins. You know, yoga was always meant to be practiced in the context of Ayurveda because Ayurveda explains how all of life functions. And it says that we as humans are made up of three main elements. And this is you know, in some ways similar to the Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine that people may be familiar with. But in Ayurveda, the three main elements are earth, fire, and air. So each of us has one of these elements dominant within us. And according to Ayurveda, it's all about nurturing and keeping that element balanced. And you do that through nutrition, which I'm sure would be very interesting for you. There's all these different ways that you can do it. But you're also supposed to do this through your yoga practice. So the yoga poses you choose to indulge in or avoid could kind of irritate your dominant element or really soothe it. So it's really important that we practice yoga within the context of Ayurveda. But what happened is that when yoga came West, Ayurveda didn't come with it. It got left behind. And this is how we've ended up where we are at with like group yoga classes where everyone's supposed to be doing the same pose, the same way, on the same breath cadence, with the same alignment. When, as we talked about, like the hyper bendy person, they don't need more stretching poses. Like that's not their tapas. That's not interesting for them. That's not where they're going to meet their edge. That's not where they're going to grow, right? The stretchy people need to focus on strength and stability. So they're going to have to take a completely different approach to the practice. They might want to practice different types of poses and, and the inverse as well, right? Like that no pain, no gain type personality, kind of the fire people. They need to learn how to relax, stretch, do restorative yoga, do things that they would like for someone who is high fire like me, I would so much rather do 108 sun salutations than restorative yoga like a couple years ago. Like restorative yoga, for those of you who don't know, it's like you're just supported, passive, you do nothing. Like that is a nightmare. But that's actually the hard work. That's the hard work for me. I feel so seen. Oh, that I feel so seen. I did two yin yoga classes recently and I fucking cried because I was like, I was avoiding it. I'm like, this is not a workout, you know, like, I don't want to sit there for an hour, so boring, blah, blah, blah. And I went and I cried because like feeling that feeling like I don't have to do anything and just stay there was unlocked, you know, as an A-type personality, something that I really yeah, because, didn't know. I because us A-type personalities, we, we either stay busy or we indulge in sensation to avoid feeling our true feelings. So in the stretch section of the book, that chapter, I talk about how I see more tears in yin yoga and the stretch section of class than any other class because 
any other time in life, we don't have to feel our feelings. We're like professional numbers. We have our adult pacifiers. That's what I call my iPhone, right? Anytime I feel like remotely uncomfortable, I can just like check my email, check social. Like I can disassociate so quickly. Even a more yang type practice like hatha or vinyasa, like I'm still able in many ways like to disassociate because I need to think like, okay, you know, left foot to left palm, arms up. Like there's a lot to preoccupy my mind because there's kind of like complicated choreography. When you take all of that away from someone and now they just need to sit in a stretch like Indian yoga or sit fully supported in restorative. There's no cue. There's no place my foot or hand needs to be next. There's no phone that I can grab to look at. You are left alone with what your body Uh, truly needs to feel. And just like the bubbles in a champagne glass that start to bubble to the surface, like what happens is those emotions that you've been repressing feeling start to bubble up. And, And that's why many of us like avoid these more introspective, slower type of yoga practices, but it's actually the medicine that we really need. And that's why we need to have this awareness of cultivating the opposite because otherwise, uh, I don't think I, I, I went on a tangent. Like I originally, I'm a fire personality. I was attracted to want, want Bikram hot yoga. Like that was what I was originally attracted to because I was like, I, I used to be a dancer. I was like, the more I have to end in a puddle of sweat. I was like comparing myself to the girl in the front row. Like I have to get my leg higher than her. Like that's where I started. And while it felt natural to push myself like that, it was not the style that was serving me if the overall aim is coming back into balance. (laughs) Wow. And it it's makes me realize also that it's like building the relationship with the teacher where you actually have a regular teacher and build that relationship to help you understand that they know how to guide you through, right? So if I go to yoga and, and I'm a, a type A personality, I had, a, I had a really, really tough day in LA not too long ago. And I was just like super jet lagged straight off the flight. I was like, I really am going to do and just really take it easy. And the teacher was like, come on, you can do it. I'm like, no, I want to be in a child's pose right now and cry. Like this is, I came not to do it. It was really hard for me to like give up. I felt like I gave up or I failed in the class. And so that was like a really, like a, a really tough pill to swallow, to take it easy. And so it's really interesting that like it's for any yoga teachers, perhaps considering working with you, what you just shared is so powerful to kind of like understand that everyone needs it just I can't think of but the quote by Rupee Carr, which says, I'm not the whiskey you want, I'm the water you need. Mm. And it's a little bit like that idea of like, what is your medicine? Yes. I talk about this in my yoga teacher trainings too. It's like everyone actually needs something different, which makes it very challenging to teach a group class. And so the approach I take is like train everyone to be their own best teacher, like invite people to notice. Notice if you've pushed yourself too hard. Notice if you'd rather take a break. You know, notice if this feels good. Notice if you've stopped breathing. Because I don't care what fancy complex pretzel thing you're in. If you've stopped breathing, like consciously like flooding with breath, I don't think you're doing yoga anymore. Even if what you're in like is a yoga pose. Because without the breath, it's meaningless, right? It's that, it's that symbiotic oh. relationship of the breath. Because the breath is what's infusing awareness into everything. Wow. So powerful. It's it's literally what I uh, also, I think this is where our teachings kind of align, where you realize that it's giving people agency and power back. Mm-hmm. And you're, you, there's no way you can blame the doctor or the medical system. Like you are, you're taking extreme ownership of your health. 
and the, you have the agency to know what's best for you. No other person know what's best for you. And it's connecting to a gut feeling. And we, we delegate our power to so many people, even in a yoga class, right? Like we delegate this, uh, our power to like, oh, my teacher would know what's best for me. And I love that you bring that power back to the students. Like, I don't care if you don't have a yoga training, but you know what's best for your body in that way today, right? Empowering them. 100%. I mean, the number one way people give their power away immediately is because this is one of the questions I get asked the most on YouTube, on social is like, what style of yoga should I do? They think the style is the solution. Like if they can just pick out the right style, then they're all set. And the, the much more sophisticated approach here is that every single yoga style has value depending on your unique energy and how you want to shift it, right? So one yeah. of the real radical things that I'm inviting people to do in this book is to mix and match yoga styles, right? Like even though I'm a fire personality, like if I have to get, if, I've, if I'm feeling depleted, let's say I was up all night with my newborn, I'm really tired and I have to go present and teach in one of my trainings, I'm going to do an energizing technique right? And I'm going to be able to whip that out of my yoga toolkit and just do like a, a couple quick postures and breath work to energize myself. So, you know, every day we're changing. The, the soulmate poses, because I have a bunch of quizzes in the book that help you meet your soulmate poses that match your personality. Oh, that's, that's yeah, it's super cute. But like my soulmate poses pre-kids are very different from my soulmate poses now because my body changed going through pregnancy and childbirth twice. So, this is something that is is a framework, but I'm hoping that it's the book is something that a woman will use at different parts of her life. And I do have a section at the back of the book where it gives you all these ideas of how to further personalize your routine for major life moments like pregnancy, like menopause, for anxiety, for weight loss, you know, other common goals that I know people have. Uh, but it has to start with yeah. you knowing yourself, right? Because that's going to tell you what poses in breath work you should indulge in and which you should potentially avoid. Oh, so beautiful. I, oh, so many, you touched on so many things. We can go on a tangent, just like to motherhood and kind of help you understand, like, how has that made, how has yoga made you a better mom, you think? Oh, my goodness. Well, in one of the styles of yoga that I teach, which is called Kundalini yoga, which is a more esoteric form of yoga for people who aren't familiar with it. It has more chanting. Often people wear white, although you don't have to. It has more rhythmic movements and it's focused more on the energy body, while Hatha and Vinyasa yoga are more focused on the physical body. So in Kundalini yoga, we have what's called a Kriya, which is a set of postures, usually that are pretty challenging. And I think yoga has made me a better mom in that when I'm in a difficult moment with one of my children and they're breaking down or having a tantrum, I tell myself, this is a Kriya, as in like, this is a spiritual practice right now that I need to strengthen my nervous system capacity to get through. And that reframe has been so, so powerful because in these Kundalini Kriyas, you do really hard things like hold your arms above your head for like five minutes. I've been to a couple like Kundalini classes. I was like, oh, this is really hard because you have to breathe and do like these yeah, things. Yeah, like it doesn't, I think chant. it's funny because people like walking by would be like, that doesn't look hard. But like when you actually are doing it, it's extremely painful to like hold some of these weird positions and breathe and you're not supposed to move. And I have a lot of mixed feelings about Kundalini and the whole tradition. So that's a whole nother rabbit hole. But this idea of a Kriya being something purifying and challenging that your nervous system capacity needs to widen, needs to expand, needs to broaden and strengthen in order to get through has been such a powerful gift. And it's like childbirth is such a rite of passage in that way, right? Where you're literally like your breath is everything. 
And then children are We're not that way, right? Like you go to a hospital and they kind of tell you, you know, just lie down which with your feet up, which kind of like closes up the diaphragm. And then women need all the support or they feel like it's a sickness that they need to be saved from. But no one talks about breath work. Oh my right? gosh. Yes. I mean, I gave birth to my first child unassisted alone at home, which I would not recommend. That was not the plan, but I feel blessed. But honestly, the, the reason I was able to do that was because of all the yoga. And I was just, I just breathed my way through it. And when you take breathing seriously, and by seriously, I'm not like you need to spend an hour of your life breathing. Like in my book, I talk about how I actually do this. Like I do it at stoplights when I'm driving around. I do it in my garage. Let's talk about it. We'll talk about it because that's what I'm actually going to be my next question for someone who, because it's so intimidating, right? Like you want to start and you're like, okay, I'm going to finish this interview and I feel so excited, but like, what do I, where do I go? So we'll talk about it in a second, but finish the birth story. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the birth story essentially is that when I had my first son, everyone told me that labor was really long and that, you know, the biggest mistake is to go to the hospital too soon. So, you know, let's go back. This is the type A personality. So I'm like, I'm not going to go to the hospital to the very last minute. And it actually had been a huge point of friction to be a little personal between my husband and I, because I wanted to do a home birth. And to him, that felt very frightening, very unsafe. So that was causing a lot of discord. So the compromise we eventually arrived at was that I would hire a midwife to labor at home for as long as possible. And then we would go to the hospital. So we we're going to kind of do this hybrid approach. But the difference between a midwife and a doula is that a midwife can actually deliver a child. So it was a lot more expensive, but I, I chose that option. And honestly, thank God, goddess, that I did because what, goddess, goddess that I did because what happened is, you know, the, the labor started. My son was 10 days early. Everyone always told me your first child's late. So, I mean, it was just like everything everyone told me was just like these, these fables. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I just was like, I'm going to breathe through this. And so I, I did have a very fast labor. So I know that lots of people, that's not the case. I think a lot of how you give birth is genetic. Like my mom had fast labor. So I don't want to shame anyone. Like if you need to go to the hospital, if you want medication, like I celebrate every choice, but I just happened to have a very fast labor. And I was breathing and was able to handle the pain so well because of all this Kundalini yoga I'd been doing, honestly, I could breathe through pretty much anything. And basically um. I was at peak like contraction delivery point just at home and hadn't left for the hospital yet. And then I just felt, I, I, I remember screaming to my husband, I was like, something's coming out of me. And so we called the midwife so we call the midwife and she's like driving to yoga class, like la 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 in her car. And we literally like hold the phone under my coochie. Okay. And we like show her what's happening on the iPhone as she's driving. And right away she was like, Brett needs to get on all fours. Jake, you need to like get ready. Like she just, we, we propped up the iPhone on some yoga blocks because of course I brought yoga blocks into the bathroom because I was just kind of going between my bathtub and my mat, you know, and we just propped her up and she's, she just talked us through it. And like at less than a minute later, I gave birth. Yeah. Oh my God. And she's like, and what a, what a medicine for your husband that he was able to deliver the birth, yes. even though he thought they were insane. And he did it himself. Our dog was in there, yeah, like 
barking its head off. We were so unprepared. And I mean, it just really shows the power of the human body. Again, I know that, you know, there, there's different births that do need, but I was just so lucky. Yeah. But also it is when you, when it comes to birth, like you get to the hospital and it feels like it's a little bit like this is the moment for you to do breath work. No, the breath work start. It's a, it's a culmination of your entire life and your approach to breath. Or even if you're considering having a baby, that's hey you have nine months to figure out your breath right like it's still there's a reason why the pregnancy takes nine months instead of nine days Mm -hmm. it's like it's like a wake-up call of like what can i do to prepare myself for this birth like for women back in the day that was like a life and death situation they were like i have no choice to be like hey i'm gonna go to the hospital and again that is not to shame anybody but you know not less than 200 years ago you had nine months and you better get ready because your life's a in danger. Yeah. Right? And we can get ready now. I mean, that's a great segue to shift to like some of these habits that that we can do because I think one of the biggest things I want to change with this book and my mission is like for really everyone to realize that yoga doesn't have to be this thing that you do, right? I want to write the biggest friggin' permission slip for you to do yoga in little bits and chunks here and there, for you to just do breath work in your car. Is there value in doing a 60 minute class? Oh, yes. Is there value in doing a 90-minute class, going on a yoga retreat? Yes, like resounding yes. But there's already a million books about that. What I wanted to create was the book that maybe is meeting. That's why it's called, you know, Habits, Poses, and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos. Because it's like, what do you do when, you know, you're the mom of two really young kids running a company and has a dad dying of cancer? Like, that was my reality, right? And I didn't have time to practice the way that I used to. I needed to just do any little hacks that could like keep me sane uh, to get through bedtime. So what I want people to realize is that it doesn't need to look a certain way. I have had, I think we have these stories we tell ourselves, right? That like in order for my meditation to be profound, I need to be on a cushion. I need to be you know, wearing something beautiful. I need to have beautiful scents around me. It will be even better if I'm in a temple in Bali, right? Like I have had some of my most profound moments of enlightenment in my pajamas. I had one looking at a tampon wrapper in a bathroom in a moment of heartbreak. And I just decided to do some breathwork and meditation. Like it is these, these extraordinary experiences can happen in ordinary moments. And it's very common for me to Uh, I was telling someone this yesterday, and I think I talk about it in the book. Like I stash just cheap yoga mats all around my house, like the $10 ugly ones from Amazon, just because I just want them everywhere. And it's really normal for me to just like, I have one in my bathroom. I'll roll it out and I will do some cat cows, which is just like an on, on all fours, essential spinal movement and talk to my husband about our plan for the weekend while he shaves. That is like completely normal. And now is that as, is that as potent as me slipping away to do, you know, my 20 minute ritual, which you design in the book? No, hopefully I'll get to do that later, but like, it's better than nothing. Right. And that way, if that ritual doesn't happen or can't happen because I'm a caretaker of others, or I'm in a season of life, that's really challenging. It's like, we're finding ways to slip it in. I'm happy to share a couple more yoga habits with folks. If you, yes, okay. okay. Yes. So I talk a lot about yoga in between and what yoga in between means is like using the in-between moments where we're just not conscious or often looking at our phone to do our yoga and breath work practice. And again, this is a mindset, sh- mind- mindset shift that all the yoga and breath work we're doing is 
cumulative. So probably most people listening to this have a savings account, at least I hope you do, right? And we all know that when you put money in the savings account, it accrues. There's like a compound interest effect. It's money in the bank. So we need to start thinking about our yoga and our breath work the same way. Even one breath amidst an argument or chaos that you slow down and put your hand on your heart and belly is worthwhile. That is money. That is prana, right? In your bank, in in your sanity bank, essentially. So let's explain what prana is for those who don't know. Yeah. So because this is thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Prana is just the the Sanskrit term for like energy, right? So so energy essentially. So where yogis are all about optimizing your energy. That's yoga is the science of energy management is what I always say. So when we look for these in-between moments, we actually find there's so many, like many of your listeners might drink tea. I love to drink tea. So while I wait for the kettle to boil, I either balance on one leg or I do a big side stretch using my table and chair to support me. So many people think their yoga, like their furniture is a problem and that's why they can't practice yoga or their space is too small. I'm like, dude, a tiny doorway or like using my bed to leverage against my wall, like all of your furniture, everything in your house is a yoga prop and can support you. So doing a couple little stretches while you wait for the tea to boil is just like one example. While usually I'd run around and do an errand and then forget about the tea or I'd look at my phone and get stressed out. So just kind of retraining some of these moments. And I, and I can keep going and give a couple more examples, but it's just like the reframe that this can happen anywhere. It's cumulative. It always counts. It's easy. It's not like this huge to-do list item. I don't have to achieve nirvana. I'm just, you know, slowly hacking my nervous system one small action at a time. Oh, it's, I, I didn't realize how much we have in common. Obviously, you didn't get the chance to, to take a look at my book, but I talk about micro workouts and micro fasts. Yes. So I was like, I'm listening to this. It was like, literally, I said like three minutes as you're like making your meal to move your body, which I obviously didn't connect it with yoga, but it's more about this idea that three micro workouts a day, it's almost worth more than spending an hour at the gym and then sitting in front of a computer for 10 hours because it's like you basically mobilize. So just like remembering that even if you're sitting and unfortunately electronics do that to us, that we freeze in those weird poses without movement, right? And it's just like reminding yourself, okay, cool. Like, you know, be here right now is, is super powerful. So I love, I resonate with that. I'm on the plane. I was on the plane yesterday and it's a super narrow passage. So I always put my hands and kind of like stretch like this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know what I mean. And so someone's like, oh, you're a yoga teacher. I'm like, no, but I'm actually speaking to one tomorrow. But I, I love like, just like after sitting for, for five hours to just like drop myself in the body. So I give us some more examples. Cause I love like that. It's like, I'm sure everyone's going to like dive into the book and kind of like figure out our, the soulmate poses and figure out like what what is their tapas, but just a couple more actionable steps that we can incorporate yoga and breath. Yeah, definitely. And I, I love that you just brought up the micro workouts because I'm sure a lot of people listening are wanting going to want to do your micro workouts. And here's the thing. You could pair your soulmate yoga postures either before or after the workout that they're doing with you. Like I I did an interview the other day where someone was like, wow, so I could just do a couple of my soulmate yoga postures before weightlifting or after weightlifting or when I come home from a walk. And I'm like, yes, right? Like we we, want to honor the yogic tradition, but yoga has been evolving. I've done so much research in this book. There are so many footnotes. And what I have discovered is yoga has been changing from when it, when it, when we saw the first cave paintings of it in Mahanyadaro, you know, thousands of years ago through the industrial revolution till now, it has taken some major twists and turns. It's not static. 
and and evolving for people in the modern world who are householders, not in, in Vedanta, they have these four life stages. And, and mostly when we look at history, the people who were doing yoga were young men training for priesthood. So like the equivalent of young priest boys, essentially going into monastic life and very, very elderly men who, after they were a grandfather, they'd go wander in the woods and beg for alms, run on, run, like give away their clothing and they'd meditate in caves to prepare for the next life, right? Those two groups of people- yeah is who yoga, the, the original ancient yoga was designed for. And that's not most of the people listening, right? We are in a different life stage, which is called the householder stage, which is called the gristasha stage. And the yoga that we need is totally different. We need action-oriented yoga. We need yoga in that's that's modular, that we can expand maybe on a Sunday when we have more time to practice, that we can sprinkle throughout the day and other activities. I think it's like, it's to your original point that yoga is like, what is your actual medicine for today, right? And it's not about trying to stick to a practice that was relevant thousands of years ago. It's about finding the practice that is the medicine you actually need for today. And this is how you get consistent with your practice. Because when you're shoehorning yourself into doing something that doesn't feel good or that you know, you're not in the mood for that type of class, well, then obviously you're going to have resistance to a little daily yoga ritual. But I feel like everyone in our culture and in our communities, right? Everyone wants more self-care. Everyone wants more self-love. And it's like your yoga practice is the ultimate tonic that can nourish you. If you just learn a couple essential rules, how to be kind of an apothecary and to mix and match a couple postures, a couple breathwork techniques that you know work for your body, and then maybe, you know, shake it up a little bit based on how much time you have and the type of day you're going into or finishing and it, this is like the ultimate way we can nourish ourselves. And then you always want to do your practice because you're like, this meets me wherever I am in any given moment. Wow. That, I, I had so many questions prepared for you. And I feel like we even like didn't even <laughs> get started. But, but I think I'm just very happy with everything that you've shared so far that it's just, it makes me feel so, yeah, like it's like a giant permission slip that, hey, you can do it, whatever it's going to work for you. And even today, uh, because I'm speaking to you, my friend is visiting and she's going to go to a yoga class. And it was a part of me like, oh, I don't have two hours now. I'm going to miss it. And then I realized I'm like, well, after this interview, I'm just going to have my own practice for five minutes. It doesn't matter that I missed the class that was two hours. I'm going to give myself permission to just do whatever feels good for my body instead of waiting for this big moment in life and just like, okay, that's it. I didn't get to do yoga because X, Y, yeah, and Z. And I'm like, even better, like no. ultimate hack, like you could do belly breathing while talking to me right now. Yeah, well, I, the moment you start talking You're about already doing it, I can tell. <laughs> but this is like, you know, for everyone listening, like the next time you're on that boring conference call, like just start like really deeply breathing. Put your hand on your belly. No one will be able to see. It's like you can even do yoga while you're doing other stuff, you know? Like, the biohacker and me, I guarantee that like the more present you are when I, you know, meet so many incredible people, people that are not the most famous, but the ones that make the biggest impression on me and the most charismatic are very dropped into their bodies. And so I think I I have this theory that people that breathe better are better in life or they're more charismatic because they're more, more present. And that's so charming to everyone around you that if you're sitting in that meeting and you want to ask for a raise, like do it during ovulation and remember to breathe and just drop into your body because that's going to make you irresistible. I agree. Like nothing is sexier than like a super calm, 
nervous system. And, and for those of us that like are attracted to men, like that's what most of us want from our, from our partner, right? Like we want them to be calm. We want them to be grounded. Yeah. So the more you can just be that for yourself, I couldn't agree more. That's a really fun way to look at it. It's like a strong nervous system is incredibly attractive because other nervous systems are like attracted to that because they know that that's the most uh, healthy way to operate. So I think that's really fun. 100% I can definitely uh, even the fact that you were able to spark so many goosebumps in me I was like what is going on what is she doing to me <laughs> I don't like it awesome. but it's like just drop it like dropping the like truths that like really truly resonate with my body and knowing that you you're right and yeah giving me the agency to match my practice to what I actually need I'm so happy. I'm like, if that's the one takeaway, I'm like, yes, that's so good. So yes, um, permission slips for everyone. And thank you so much for having me. Brad, can you walk us through where we can find you and what offerings you have, except uh, apart from the book? Let's talk about the book. Where can we find you on socials? And yeah, all your courses. Yeah, so my book is Yoga Life, which is really easy to remember because it's sprinkling yoga into your life and it's available anywhere books are sold. You can find it on Amazon or bookshop.org or however you like to buy your books. My website is brettlarkin.com, B-R-E-T-T, like the man's name, larkin.com with two T's. And on there, they can find everything. I mean, I have online yoga teacher trainings. I've certified over 3,000 yoga teachers, um, kundalini trainings, uh, more traditional hatha vinyasa trainings at every level and business courses for yoga teachers. So it's a wonderful community. And uh, I really look forward to connecting with people. Yeah. Do you still do your retreats? I don't do retreats in this particular season of life because I have two little kids. But before they were born, I did do yoga retreats and I loved them. But I'm happy to always give recommendations for retreats from my alumni community and other teachers that I love if someone wants to go practice in person. And also, it doesn't mean that you won't do them in the future. So make sure you follow Brad and just, you know, keep track of everything that she's doing because it just like, I feel fully like seen and and your beautiful feminine energy that you have brought to yoga. It just, it's it's so beautiful. And I feel absolutely inspired to up my breath work and yoga training. It was an honor to host you. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And yeah, thank you for being uh, my guest. Thank you.